Hey, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for being with us. You can reach us 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. Uh, later in this hour, we're going to talk about the whole issue of birth tourism. Uh, that being pregnant women who deliberately go out of their way to come to Canada, in some cases pay a lot of money to all kinds of shady brokers and middlemen uh, to, to come here to do that. Now, that has to do with Canada's citizenship rules and what it means when a baby is born on Canadian soil. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, one prominent Canadian doctor uh, who's uh, chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at McMaster University. It says, look, hospitals are already struggling to provide care to Canadian women. This is exacerbating that problem. We need to address this with some urgency, even if that might mean Canadian doctors denying care. Uh, to these uh, so-called birth tourists. So we'll talk about that coming up after 2.30. We'll hear from Dr. John Barrett at McMaster University. A few other things we'll get to uh, this hour, including your phone calls. But off the top in this hour, I want to talk about Canada's history and the very politically charged conversation that's happening around Canadian history and Canadian historical figures. Is Canada a great country because of its history? Is Canada a great country in spite of its history? Or does that history negate the idea that Canada can even be a great country. I mean, history is at some level objective. Here's what happened. Here's who was involved. But it's, uh, it is certainly subjective in the way in which it's framed, the way in which certain figures end up as heroes or villains. Plus, there's maybe a notion that it feels more recent where we're kind of looking at history and looking at historical figures and looking at decisions that were made you know, generations ago through uh, today's lens. And, and maybe that skews uh, proper retelling uh, of, of that history. Anyway, so I think this is an important issue for a lot of reasons. Uh, and I know our next guest uh, thinks so as well. Uh, I want to tell you more about the 1867 Projects, uh, a new book from the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. The full title is The 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled, 20 distinct voices make the case for Canada. Now you can read more at aristotlefoundation.org, but joining us on the line is the editor uh, of the 1867 Project, Mark Milkey, who's president of the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. Mark, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. It's great to be here. So let's start, first of all, with the question that why is this necessary right now? Well, a number of reasons, but I think the best way to describe it is countries, civilizations, societies are like an oak tree. They take time to grow, and when they're at their peak, when they're at their best, like an oak tree, they shelter a lot of people beneath the canopy. And that's a bit like a country, at least a successful, prosperous country that has provided shelter to millions, tens of millions of people over the decades, and in fact, uh, you know, before pre-confederation. So Canada's like that. And these days, we seem to have a lot of people, I don't think a majority of the country, but perhaps what we can call the chattering classes, some in the media, not all, Rob, uh, some politicians, and some in universities, and others, activists, who think Canada, in essence, should be canceled or ignored, or at least downplayed, and in part because of um, events in history. So that's one of the reasons we came up with the idea for the 1867 project. And um, that's, yeah, that, that's probably the origin, really, this, this notion that, you know, like an oak tree, um, you don't want to take down the oak tree. When you see a limb that's diseased, or in the case of a country, a bad policy, well, you prune off the bad policy, you prune off the limb. Right. And in that sense, you actually strengthen the tree. 
But what you don't do is pour poison on the roots or try and uproot it or take down the tree. When we talk about cancellation, uh, in this context, what, what does that mean, do you think? Well, I think it's all over the place, right? I mean, from Johnny McDonald's statue coming down in Victoria, being attacked in Montreal, Queen Elizabeth's statue, the same thing, in Saskatchewan recently, Queen Victoria in uh, Winnipeg, and so on and so forth. Or the notion, uh, the simplistic notion that history should be viewed through a lens of victim and oppressor only, as if, frankly, every human being and their ancestors are are not usually a mix of both, uh, because no one's perfect. Uh, But even more to the point, uh, the way of viewing history that actually sees how we got here in 2023 as somehow a happy accident, but not connected to the ideas of, say, the 19th century. But if you understand history more, I think, properly, then... We, we actually owe a debt of gratitude to Canada's founders and others who had ideas of, uh, of liberty, a very British classical liberal concept. And that was what set us up for mostly flourishing and success. But um, if you forget that or you think that, well, no, the only thing you can look at in history is the fact that, say, John A. Macdonald in 1867 didn't have views exactly like ours or there was this or that wrong in history, um, that leads to, a, I think, a whole series of uh, problems in terms of today that you, you can't actually, you don't actually understand then how successful liberal democratic countries come about. And they came about because of good ideas of the past, frankly, which past generations sacrificed uh, much for and worked towards reforming um, their country in their day, which led to our country in our day. Right. And I don't think there's a country on earth that doesn't have, you know, some ugly chapters in its history. And I mean, you know, that that includes Canada. So it sort of becomes this this question maybe that I alluded to in the introduction where how how we frame that is, is Canada a, a beautiful idea uh, that, that had some misguided and unfortunate uh, ideas implemented along the way? Or because of this ugliness, does that kind of render the idea of Canada uh, unsalvageable? Maybe that's where the divide is. I think the answer to the latter is no, and here's why. I actually think a core problem today is uh, too many people, again, I don't think a majority, but too many people look back to history and have what I'd call a utopian view. And what I mean by that is if you think about the 20th century, the main utopians, or at least one branch of utopian thinking, was, came from Marxism. You had Marxists who looked to the future and thought they could create a perfect, perfectly equal society and thought we should. Now, they were dead wrong about economics, about human motivations, about the need for uh, utter equality between peoples in terms of outcomes. Some people like to work 40 hours, some people 60, some people become engineers. Um, Some people will flip hamburgers, and you'll have different outcomes. The Marxists were wrong about just about everything. Uh, But I suppose at least they could argue they were looking to the future to create their perfect world, their utopia. We have people today that weirdly look at the past and think it should have been perfect. And if it's not, and of course it wasn't because it was composed of human beings like us, they look to the past and they condemn it. so that's, a, that's an even more bizarre uh, kind of approach to human civilization and thinking than the Marxists in the 20th century. Uh, so, and the problem with that is, again, they misunderstand how civilizations develop and countries develop, including ours. And frankly, it, it's become unbalanced. Uh, there's a lack of nuance when we look at Canadian history. 
So, I mean, one of the authors in the book actually defends Johnny McDonald and, and uh, the, chapter, the chapter of his, uh, sorry, the title of his chapter, Greg Piasatsky, and he's an Ontario, uh, he's a Toronto lawyer and a citizen of the Métis Nation of Ontario. Greg argues that Johnny McDonald saved more Indigenous lives than any other Prime Minister. And he does, and he makes that claim for some very specific reasons, contrarian as it is, uh, vis-a-vis some claims today. So, you know, the problem is when you look at history simplistically as, look, your, you know, your group, you know, has all the, the, you know, the black hats, so to speak. My group has all the white hats or vice versa. That's incredibly simplistic about human beings, motivations, choices available at the time. In the case of John A. McDonald, for example, he and the British favored treaties precisely because they didn't want to see in the Canadian West what happened in the American West, which was the so-called Indian Wars, which, of course, uh, was um, utterly murderous and destructive to Native populations south of the border, unlike, unlike north of the border, precisely because of John A. Macdonald's priorities, precisely because of British priorities that said, we want treaties first, settlement later. Yeah, I mean, you know, the United States is an interesting example of all of these issues, just, you know, having the longer history and, and having, you know, the, the blight of slavery and, and that sort of thing. Because at the end of the day, you know, those principles, uh, you know, that, that underlie the creation of the United States, even if it took a long time to ensure that they applied to everybody, uh, were, were beautiful principles. And these things don't just happen by accident, uh, and, and maybe it takes a long time to get to the right place. I think well, much of that is true you're thinking, here. Uh, I assume, Rob, you're, you're reference, kind of referencing the American notion of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or yes. in the Canadian version, uh, good government, right? Mm-hmm. So peace, order, and good government. They're, they're ideals, yeah. right? Well, that's the thing. And we are a country of ideals. But, you know, again, where did those ideals come from? It's not just an accident that we happen to be here in a country uh, that more or less values those those ideals, right? Those evolve over time, and those those came from somewhere. And it's about, you know, the principles this country was founded on. Well, and taking the good ideas from the past, uh, or an imperfect period, and again, every period is imperfect. You and I are imperfect, Rob. I mean, 100 years from now, someone's going to look at Mark Milkey and and Rob Breckenridge and say, how could you possibly have believed X, right? So part of what we were trying to do in the 1867 project is also add a modicum of modesty to our claims, the hubris that you often hear these days. People kind of assume if they lived back whenever they would have made the immediate right decision or been able to reform society quickly. Like, let's let's take suffrage as one example. Uh, We've got an author in the book who talks about the role of women in the the 19th century or early 20th century. And um, she's a professor uh, now from Vancouver, retired professor. But she writes on the role of women in the 19th and 20th centuries. Some favored suffrage, some did not. But even if you favored suffrage, which one should have, uh, what she argues is... There were successful women back then, even before the vote, but also for those who think, you know, why couldn't we reform quicker? Well, well, think about Canada in 1910 or 1890. It's mainly a rural country. You might have trains finally between some major cities. But how do you, you know, how do you get to, say, women across the country or press for suffrage? It wasn't an easy project. And meanwhile, most of the country is poor. Most of it's agricultural. These things are not easy to reform, even when the idea is there. And then, you know, you get to World War One or World War Two. That interferes with certain reforms that maybe were on the top of mind and went to the back of the mind because of war. So I think also what we're trying to do in the 1867 project is say, 
try and put yourself in the shoes of people in a previous age. Not only did some of them fully understand that some reforms were needed and work towards them, and in fact did the hard work of it, unlike us today who benefit from it, uh, but they also had other things going on, so to speak. So that's the other part of the 1867 project, is trying to provide some context for, say, previous periods and some nuance, but also calling people to really renew what were some good ideas back then and the role of the individual uh, in law in law and policy, the importance of the individual in law and policy. We've actually gone backward on. I mean, for, for some decades, most people had a Martin Luther King approach to uh, relations um, between different groups, which is we're not going to look at you as part of a group. We're going to look at you as an individual. And these days we're back in the soup with um, what some call affirmative action and what I call racial and gender uh, preferences and quotas, which are pretty anti-individual and something actually Pierre Trudeau would have disagreed with quite heartily vis-a-vis his son, Justin Trudeau. When it comes to Canadian history, and there's a couple of things I, I think that are problems in this country, and I wonder which is the bigger challenge. The idea that, you know, a lot of Canadians just frankly don't know our history, right? So there, there's a level of ignorance that exists when it comes to this country's history. But there's also, as you say, an attempt to reframe it or redefine it or, or portray it a certain way. So is it about Canadians learning our history or is it about unlearning certain notions or ideas about our history? Well, probably both, but also you, know, you can know your history but, but draw the wrong lessons from it. Yeah. So one of the authors in the 1867 project is Rima Azar. Rima writes a chapter in the book on why identity politics, right, this notion that we should look at people first and foremost as uh, this color or that ethnicity or from that ancestry or not. Rima, who, who emigrated from Lebanon 30 years ago, came to Canada precisely to get away from that sort of that sort of identity politics, which was deadly in Lebanon. If you were of the wrong faith, the wrong religion in Lebanon, and you went to the, the wrong checkpoint, you could be murdered because you weren't the right identity, the right religious identity at that point. And so when she came to Canada, she found a country that, for the most part, didn't look at you based on where you were from, your color and that sort of thing. It was, again, the Martin Luther King ethic of, we're going to look at your character, content of your character. Um, and in the case of jobs, for example, merit, that was pretty widespread. We've gone backwards. So Rima writes a chapter on why this is quite dangerous. And she is an immigrant, along with another, not an immigrant, but we, we have uh, a fellow that wrote in from India, uh, Gurav Jaswal, who's an entrepreneur, who sent his two sons to Canada. And he also writes a chapter on why it's a really bad idea to go down this kind of road, but also that Canada should be celebrated. He finds it really fascinating and disturbing that some Canadians are beating up on the country when he thinks we're successful. And he gives, and also this claim that we're institutionally racist. So Gaurav Jaswell in the book talks about how in the state where he lives in Goa, he could not be elected to the legislature because he's the wrong ethnicity and he's not a native of that state. And yet he knows um, an MLA from British Columbia who goes unnamed, who moved there, I guess, several decades ago, became a politician and yet claims that Canada is institutionally racist. And he says, wait, wait a moment, I couldn't be elected in Goa, but you get elected in British Columbia, a new country that you moved to. And uh, so these sort of things are, are rife. You, you hear these accusations today, but what we try and do in the 1967 project, and there's 20 different authors, is unpack some of this and say, are you really sure what's in the air these days that people just assume is true, is true, or that this is the proper way to look at our country today, or whether it's 1920 or 1867? 
Interesting. It's called the 1867 Project. Why Canada should be cherished, not cancelled. Much more is mentioned. AristotleFoundation.org. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. You bet. Anytime. Thank All you. All the best. Take care. That's Mark Milkey. He's president of the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. They put out, as mentioned, the 1867 Project. Some really interesting and diverse perspectives on Canada's history. And, yeah, look, I think, you know, this all matters. And, I mean, on a day where we are celebrating National Indigenous Peoples Day, it is important to understand that history where we have wronged Indigenous peoples, how we build that relationship and and move forward together. So it it certainly relates to, to the present day. Welcome back. A few other things to get to in our time remaining here today, but I do want to turn our attention to the issue of birth tourism. And why that's a problem, why it's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, Our next guest uh, wrote an op-ed this week, or in recent days, trying to call attention to this issue and and trying to to affect some change here, even within the medical profession. Speaks of a sorry state of affairs for women in Canada uh, when it comes to uh, waiting for treatment for pelvic pain, uncontrolled bleeding, other women's health issues. 18 months or longer in some cases. And arguing that part of the problem, part of the pressure on the system uh, is the medical profession having to respond to what's known as birth tourism. Now, this is a byproduct uh, of Canada's citizenship laws and what it means uh, for somebody who's born on Canadian soil. So this is not a new problem, uh, but it is a real problem. Uh, It's hard to get a clear picture of the extent of this. Um, but again, there are those who go out of the way to to try to get to Canada and ensure that their child is born on Canadian soil. Now, there's kind of an industry around this, uh, brokers and middlemen who uh, charge fees, large fees, uh, to facilitate all of this. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, it, it puts pressure on Canadian hospitals and those that work in them. And it's why our next guest feels something needs to change. Uh, so this is an op-ed he wrote for the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology Canada, JOGC.com. Dr. John Barrett is professor and chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at McMaster University. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Barrett, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for the interest. Uh, let's help establish the context here. When we talk about birth tourism, what, what are we referring to? What does that mean to you? But I, first, I think the first thing is to is to recognize what it's not, and it, it's people who what it's not is people who are in Canada legitimately, perhaps without provincial healthcare coverage because of refugee status or because of their uh, tourists and haven't got the the right documentation or they're in uh, awaiting provincial health coverage. So it's, it's not those uh, individuals, and those people, you know, uh, sometimes there are barriers to their healthcare, and we must make sure that they're not lumped into the same category. Uh, that, that, that these people should should have uh, seamless um, access to healthcare, just like people who have insurance. The the the, the issue we're dealing with is people who deliberately travel to Canada um, to seek out healthcare. In this in, in this area, we're talking about birth, birth uh, to have a baby, but it's not just it's not just that category. People people attempt to Canada uh, come to Canada for many of their health needs. I think the birth tourism issue is. Uh, one of the areas of, of major focus and interest because uh, it does carry with it not only um, the seeking of excellent health care, but also the acquisition of Canadian citizenship eventually. And I think that's why perhaps it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's more under focus. 
Right. So we, we need to, to focus specifically, I guess, on what we would to define it as. And as you, you know, describe it in the piece, the, the deliberate travel to another country with the purpose of giving birth in that country. That, that's what we mean by birth tourism. That's exactly right. The other point, too, and, the, and sort of the backdrop to all of this is the, the reality in, in hospitals across the country. You described the sorry state of affairs in our hospital in which we currently do not have the resource to, to provide an acceptable level for those requiring obstetrical and gynecological service. So it's not just about the principle uh, of birth tourism, but it's about the resources we're taking away from, from women in hospitals across the country. So maybe elaborate on that side of it. Yeah, that's correct. So the, the you know, a woman's health care or the reproductive health care, unfortunately, does not receive priority in, in, I would say, in many or maybe even in most health care jurisdictions. Um, and, and that's because there's a finite bucket and priorities are often set on areas that are not these conditions of women's health care, which you know, perhaps aren't life-threatening, but they are life-disabling. And I'm talking about things like um, uh, incontinence, female incontinence. In, in most places, and we've done a survey of the departments across Canada, the waiting list for um, in, uh, incontinence surgery is more than a year, up to 18 months. So, so where in the world, in which healthcare system is acceptable for, for, a, uh, for a person to be incontinent and leaking urine for a year and a half? So that is, that is the reality of what we're facing. Um, we're facing labor and delivery units, which are... Um, uh, oversubscribed. We we cannot in many places in our in, in my hospitals in in Hamilton McMaster, um, our numbers have increased thirty or forty percent. We haven't got the staffing, so we haven't got the resources to care for our own uh, our own Canadians. And and, there, and when you add to that mix people who are deliberately travelling here um, to to obtain a, uh, a medical service, in this case specifically birth, <clears throat> because of the care. They are displacing Canadians, and the and the hidden agenda often is the is as I say the attainment of the Canadian citizenship, and and it it is taking healthcare away from Canadian women. So how do we address this, or how can doctors be a part of the solution then? Well, that was that was the, the editorial, and there there is cause for debate, and and it's not a simple question uh, or a simple solution. Um, the the approach that that, that I take and expressed in the article is that we should put up a, 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 or um, have a position of zero, of zero tolerance. In other words, we have the hospital, the hospitals take the status that we do not accept people uh, who are coming to have babies here without health insurance, unless they're one of the categories that I excluded from the above. So if, you, if you're coming here to have a baby for birth tourism and you're not a category um, like a refugee or someone without status, um, then we should just deny the acceptance of that person into the hospital. Now, um, if you do that, it, it's my opinion that what will happen is eventually people will just not come to that hospital. And if all the hospitals did that across Canada, then I believe the practice will stop. The, the downside of that argument, of course, is that we cannot deny somebody emergency care. If somebody shows up in a labor and delivery unit and needs care, we're obviously not going to refuse them. Right. And if people show up and you haven't given them care, then you're going to have adverse outcomes for those people because a part of pregnancy is pregnancy care. The trouble is, is if we facilitate it in some way by engaging in the process, then I believe we'll get into a slippery slope. And that slippery slope is on both sides. It's on behalf of the patient because what is not spoken about is the middleman. And, and I know this to be a fact. It's difficult to prove, but I'm, I know it from my own patients that 
there are middlemen who charge these people a lot of money, um, sometimes putting up putting them up in places of residence uh, and, and taking a brokerage fee to 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 arrange the process. So there's, there's, so so that that is happening. Um, the patients themselves suffer because what happens is, you know, birth is a usually a, a normal happy process, but when there's a complication, then and the baby ends up in intensive care unit, then the patients themselves are landed with a huge bill of, of uh, which they can't afford, and then the hospital suffers in the end. And I think the article that my colleague published showed that you know a stay in intensive care unit is hundreds of thousands of dollars, which the hospital then loses and the healthcare system loses. Mm-hmm. So unless we draw a line in the sand in which this practice is just you know um, not allowed, if you can do that, then I believe patients will go elsewhere, maybe to healthcare systems which are more able to accommodate a people serve patients with more uh, more ability. I think my colleague said, it's interesting, these people come and they fly over 17 countries to get here, all with good health systems. Right. So they're coming here because we, we, facilitate, we facilitate the practice by not doing anything about it. Um, and then as a cherry on the top, we allow health citizenship to the person and their family uh, eventually once that baby is 18 years old. Right. So we're in a critical storm of taking resources away from Canadians. Um, um, and if, unless we do something about it, and I believe it's drastic what we have to do. I don't, I don't think it's a simple solution because, unfortunately, the health care of some people will suffer, which is nobody wants to do that. But I can't see it another way around. Well, and, and there's probably a role for policymakers to play, but, you know, it can be difficult in knowing why somebody's coming to Canada in, in the first place. So there, there are challenges on that side. But as you say, by doctors taking a stand, by refusing to accept those non-urgent, the planned and deliberate uh, births, that, that that can maybe, if nothing else, be a wake-up call, but, you know, ensure that, you know, that this, this remains top of mind. Yeah, I mean, I think policymakers do have to, uh, the government has to has to look at their policy of of, of citizen acquisition rights in Canada, which is not the same all over the world. So I think that will play a role. But that's not the only reason people come. Yes, part of the reason people come simply because they have accessible, good health care which they can pay for. You know, and and as soon as you and and plenty of people benefit from the money that these people are paying, right? As I said, the middle the middlemen. Physicians themselves, we also benefit because we, we there is there's no really there's no real fee schedule. <clears throat> Most physicians are uh, do not gouge people, um, but you know, I have heard of experiences of significant sums of money being um, being asked for and paid because people have the money. So you've got this sort of hidden fee for service system, which we know we don't partake of in Canada, and the reason we don't do it because we have an equitable health system for everybody. And, and this, although it's not a huge number overall, as it was pointed out in the article in the National Post, there are certain hospitals that it can be up to 10% or even 25% of a birth. Wow. That's devastating for Canadians who live in that jurisdiction. Indeed. Well, the opinion piece, uh, people want to read it. It's at jogc.com. Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your interest. Bye-bye. All right, all the best. There you go. That's Dr. John Barrett, uh, chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at McMaster University, uh, writing about this issue, the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology Canada, JOGC.com.
And yeah, look, I mean, we could change the law. I mean, you know, there's there's an obvious path to addressing this as far as policymakers are concerned, and the federal government specifically. But in the meantime, he says, look, you know, doctors should not be facilitating this, should not be a part of the problem. He says the facilitation of birth tourism causes everyone to suffer. The thought that even one patient seeking birth tourism would potentially take either an obstetrical spot out of our hospital quota or a spot on the gynecologic waiting list should be enough to unite all in a position that anything in any way that facilitates this practice should be frowned upon. New report out this week by the Canada Energy Regulator certainly caught a lot of people's attention uh, here in Alberta. Raised some eyebrows, I guess, too, at the same time. What is the future of the Canadian energy sector as we look at a world that's moving toward net zero? So it's the first time that the Canada Energy Regulator has presented a long-term outlook uh, for Canadian energy with this kind of as the baseline. Now, it's hard to know just how successful the world's countries are going to be in meeting some of these uh, Paris targets. Uh, But, I mean, it's worth understanding what it could mean if it does happen. Uh, So, for example, according to this assessment by the Canada Energy Regulator, uh, if the world is successful in reaching 2050 climate targets and the kinds of emission reductions that are required and holding global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius, in that scenario... Uh, They said global fossil fuel use will drop by 65 percent by 2050, prompting a collapse in global oil prices as low as $24 a barrel by 2050, uh, and meaning a sharp reduction in Canadian oil production, perhaps 76 percent less by 2050. Now, that would have a huge impact on Canada and the energy sector. Again, that's one possible scenario. And depending on what we see from the rest of the world in terms of uh, successful emissions reductions, I mean, that's going to impact what these numbers look like. Uh, So the Canada Energy Regular isn't saying, you know, X is going to happen. Just saying if X happens, this is what it would look like. If Y happens, this is what it would look like, etc. And I think it's worth understanding that. I mean, inevitably, there is going to be a transition. Inevitably, the world is going to move away from fossil fuels. So what does that mean to Canada? How do we prepare for that? And, you know, that talk of preparation gets wrapped up in politics, you know, the idea of the just transition, etc. But there's a big difference between deliberately phasing out oil and gas jobs and how we prepare for a scenario where maybe eventually those jobs will be phased out. Anyway, so joining us for more on maybe where this conversation needs to go, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Marla Orenstein, uh, director of the Canada West Foundation's Natural Resource uh, center more at cwf.ca marla great to have you with us here welcome to the program thanks so much rob i'm happy to be invited today well i appreciate you joining us i think this is an important conversation but first of all i want to get your thought i mean what do we make of you know these numbers from the canada energy regulator how solid these numbers are and i guess maybe you know how realistic some of these scenarios are yeah so the way that you describe this makes a really really important distinction what they've put forward aren't projections They're not estimates of what's going to happen. It's not based on supply and demand estimates of what Canada is likely to need or want. As much as it is supposing the outcome is a net zero world or a net zero Canada, what what does that look like over the next 30 years in terms of of the the change in the mix of energy uses and, and emissions? So it's not saying this is what we're going to see based on 
policy. It's not saying this is what we're going to see based on electricity use or demand. It's, it's if we start with this endpoint and work backwards, how did we get there? Right. Um, so that point, I think, is, is really, really important to emphasize because it's very easy when you look at those gorgeous, pretty graphs in the report, as, as I have here in front of me, to think that they're saying this is what we anticipate is actually going to happen. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. And again, some of these scenarios may or may not unfold. It's it's you know it's not about predicting the future, as you say. But why is it important to to better understand what some of these scenarios could look like? I, I think the implications that we have for us, uh, certainly here in Canada, are where is demand going to rise? Because where demand rises for different types of energy shows us where the economic opportunities are as well. In their models, they they certainly continue to have fossil fuels used um, as part of energy sources, but they're also saying if if these futures were to materialize, we would definitely see a rise in hydrogen. We would see a rise in small nuclear um, reactors. We would see a rise in biofuels, et cetera. And those are opportunities that a lot of Western Canadian companies are really well positioned to take advantage of. And so... I think it sends a message that there is opportunity if we move forward on it. Right. And I think that's an important side to look at. I mean, there's the obvious, you know, downside to these numbers. And, you know, how do we support workers or industries that are going to be hard hit by this transition at some point down the road? But as you say, you know, the more optimistic take is, okay, things are moving in this direction, uh, whatever the pace might be. How do we get ahead of this? How do we find opportunity in that? Is, Is that important to grasp? Yeah, exactly, because many of the skill sets that are used to drill for oil can also be used in other things, whether you're drilling for geothermal, whether you're creating these massive uh, carbon capture projects. Those are all things that require employment, they require skill, they require expertise. They are massive project infrastructure kinds of things that we know how to do and that we have the labor to do really well. As we see, I mean, there's considerable investment needed for that right now. And Mm -hmm. there's almost like an arms race in that sense with what we see in the U.S. with the Inflation Reduction Act, the kind of subsidies that the U.S. is offering to to green energy and having to compete with that. So uh, how does that factor in? Yeah, absolutely. The, The United States is offering tons of carrots. And for the most part, we've been offering sticks. Um, so they definitely have an advantage in terms of pulling investment towards innovation and towards a rapid change. There's not nothing going on, though. Um, Pathways is, is a huge one to point to. I'm sure you've talked about this a lot, yeah. where the federal government is offering to pony up around 50% of the cost, uh, it's billions and billions of dollars, of building these carbon capture and utilization and storage facilities if that's the direction that, that we decide to go in. Right. So there's, you know, there's the need to balance all of that because in, in the short term, for sure, maybe even the medium term, there is still demand for mm-hmm. oil and gas and uh, a need for Canada to meet that demand. And there's there's quite an industry that's tied to meeting that demand. So how do we balance that with, again, seizing the opportunities of, of tomorrow in the energy future? Yeah, it's going to be tricky because the opportunities that, that are available for Alberta are not the same ones that are available for, let's say, British Columbia or for Manitoba what we use energy for and how we use it is so different in each province um, that we've got to figure out what a path forward is that that looks right for us. And this is where it starts intersecting with federal legislation. I mean, to to build on the industry that BC wants for tomorrow, uh, they can use more hydro, for example. That's not really an option for Alberta. We've got natural gas plants and we've got to decide 
how, how best do we use them? Do we attach carbon capture to them? Um, do we put a lot of money into small modular reactors? What's our, our way forward? So we've got to figure out what the mix is going to be that actually gets us to where we want to go in terms of our goals, which, which include providing all the energy that our province needs and doing it at a cost that we can afford and also doing it in line with GHG emissions reductions and other environmental goals at the same time. There's there's a view here too. I think you know that would maybe question some of the you know the scenarios in the in the CER reports and looking at countries like China and India and where their emissions are, are going and their reliance on fossil fuels or developing economies that are still reliant on fossil fuels. That you know I think some see well look there is going to be that demand and you know given the direction some of these countries are going maybe it's not realistic to think that we're going to be anywhere in, near achieving. Uh, net zero targets by 2050. What about that side of it, do you think? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's a really important point, and it's it's a good thing that they put in two different to this scenario. One shows a world in which all the countries that you just mentioned are also actually coming forward net zero goals, but actually managing to get there. And that'll have implications for Canada as well. But there's definitely a future in which that doesn't happen, and that that same level or, or same current level or near it of fossil fuels from Canada continues to be in demand. And that, that's um, another scenario that they've built in here. And, and where there's that, that demand, we're going to have energy use in order to produce the energy that we want to ship abroad. Um, I don't know which, which <laughs> I think the, the chips are probably falling in line with they're not going to hit their net zero targets. Um, I think it's probably a better bet um, in this case, but the future's long. Yeah, it is. And I don't think we should bank on, on any given scenario. But, you know, the other point about the transition, and I think, you know, if, if if we've got those opportunities, if we've got an emerging industry and we can see that expertise and, and workers sort of transition that more naturally from one to the other, that's a positive. But I, I think inevitably there is going to be some pain in that transition. And, you know, there's a lot of talk right now already, as, as you're no doubt aware, around, you know, this idea of a transition, how we support that transition or how we support mm-hmm. workers. Does that need to be a part of the conversation? Um, I think it is a part of the conversation. I certainly hear that a lot in a lot of different circles that I'm speaking to. It's not a part of this report. And I think that's okay because that's not what this report is. It's not about that sort of a reality. It really is scenarios of, of what things might look like. Um, I think the reality is likely to be um, well, not only messy and, and costly, but uh, a bit painful in, in some circumstances. But at the same time, you know, there's there's pockets of opportunity. And I think that's where um, Canadians and particularly Albertans have always been pretty good about getting on board and trying to find ways to exploit those opportunities. So how do we take the tools that we've got from today and use them for tomorrow? Regardless of the speed of the transition, there's going to be those customers who want these new energy products. And so finding that way to to continue getting the value out of what we already have while also keeping an eye on the future and not knowing how quickly it's coming, it's a real trick. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll see what all goes from here. Appreciate the, the insight uh, here this afternoon, Marla. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Rob. All the best. Take care. Marla Ornstein, uh, Director of the Natural Resources Centre of the Canada West Foundation, cwf.ca. So worth noting what, you know, the future could look like, uh, maybe what we need to brace for. And again, I don't know that we should make assumptions one way or the other and say, no, 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 this is what the next, you know, 20 or 30 years are going to look like. Uh, but just to recognize what they could look like and, and are we well positioned, you know, to, to weather those, those scenarios. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.